Welcome to Be Simply. This is she, and I want to thank you for joining us today. We have special guest Ian Baker, and he is here to share the wisdom from his book, Tibetan Yoga Principles and Practices. In addition, he will share some wisdom from his lifetime journey and exploration in and around these teachings. Without further ado, let's dive in with Ian. Ian, I want to thank you for being here today. I'm super excited to uh, have this discourse regarding your new book, Tibetan Yoga Principles and Practices. Uh, it's such a beautiful, comprehensive memoir of what was, but also an awakening for those that maybe have crossed paths with this at another point in time in their eternal life uh, to awaken things within them. I'm curious for you, uh, because it contains so much, uh, what, where was your seed, you know, if we go through the whole book, where was the seed point that really spoke to you the most and kind of was the spiral out? Obviously, you have an organization to it, but was there one point within this book that really, that you're either passionate about or was like the driving force within this text? Well, I'd say as a whole, the book is essentially, although it's not written in that way, it's a kind of exploration of uh, what my life has been involved with over the last several decades, actually. So when I first went to Nepal in the 1970s, I became engaged by the practices and, uh, of uh, Tibetan yoga. And... Um, it was a very experiential thing for me and so actually this writing this book was essentially a retrospective by which I could actually begin to piece together both my own research the images that I kind of collected and made over many years uh, and to put them in together into a coherent form so in that sense the the book is uh, I mean you use the word actually a memoir and even though it's there's not I purposely avoid uh, the first person uh, in the book, I mean, apart from, I think, the, the foreword. Um, but it is, in that sense, a, a way of just trying to uh, contextualize a lot of extraordinary material uh, and to, as much as possible, to present it in a way that makes it accessible uh, in a cross-cultural modern context, particularly in the sense of also you, uh, exploring some of these practices in the context of what we now are beginning to understand about human physiology and, and the brain and the mind from, from neuroscience and other kind of scientific modalities, since that, in a certain sense, is the language that we, we bring to our experience today. On that note of neuroscience, and can you share a little bit with the listeners, because it seems like for the modern, we'll call modern society today, they need that, you know, uh, once science has validated it, uh, uh -huh. then they, they'll maybe like explore it. Yet, if you can share from just a, a practitioner state, uh, even from yoga or Tibetan Buddhism, that how you get that feedback loop that doesn't really require the scientific data because you're having this experiential awakening within and then certain things open up. Like if we use, for example, even Dreamtime, you, you touch on in this book, 
Um, can you share a little bit where you've had those moments or where a practitioner has those moments where you can't refute what's happening um, within your practice? So you wouldn't necessarily need science to validate the awakening that's happening. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think in the circumstance that the science where it's useful is that it's actually bringing a new language and understanding to human experience. Because although obviously through spiritual work, yogic disciplines of various kinds, experiences arise that um, in a certain sense are self-evident. And yet, obviously, we come at those from our own cultural perspective and interpret them within the, you could say, the cultural paradigms in which they arise. So that, for example, certain kinds of transcendent, numinous, mystical experiences would be have been interpreted several hundred years ago in the Western world in a kind of Christian cosmology and when they arise in the the Himalayan world they're you know their visions of the Buddha or Shiva Um, but I think what the science begins to help us with is not as you say so much to validate uh, these kinds of uh, non-ordinary experiences um, but actually to be able to understand them in a in a broader way so that we uh, rather than defining them along in narrow kind of terms, we begin to look at them in in, in larger ways as being not just, you could say, religious phenomena, but actually aspects of human experience that, that are cross-cultural and that in a certain sense can be induced and trained um, uh, you know, in a variety of ways. Uh, so I think what ultimately the Tibetan yoga that I practices that I'm referring to in that sense that in a certain sense it's a misnomer to call them Tibetan because in a certain sense there they are experiences that we're capable of as human beings that simply were developed and formulated more extensively in the Tibetan world um, but that we have access to without any ultimate reference uh, to that kind of let's say Buddhist paradigm uh, in which the experiences are packaged, if you will, uh, in the uh, Indo-Tibetan tradition. So, um, in that sense, it's, as you say, it's, uh, the science is both, it, it, it's not necessary to validate our experience, but it does help us to, in a certain sense, understand our experience in a broader uh, and less culturally limiting and reductive way. And for, from your perspective, with the science the way it is, like I teach uh, in a couple of clinics, uh, mental health and eating disorder clinics, and we do yoga, pranayama, and sound therapy, but they've been bringing in machines like to work on their brain. And how, mm. how do you feel about the merging of, you know, working with the biological anatomy in addition with spiritual practice or yogic practice? Do you get a sense of kind of the cause and effect of that? Because sometimes we put the cart before the horse and we don't know really what we're tinkering with, you know? Because mm-hmm. if we set our sure. own pace in our spiritual practice, our yogic practice, we set that, you know, oh, do I want to go a little bit further or I'm content right now with where I'm at. Um, but if we start using machinery to simulate some of these things that they're they're actually uh been able to record through scientific means. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, I would say that you know, essentially all yogic methodologies, if you will, are interventionist in the sense that we are working with our own biopsychophysiology, uh, neuroendocrinology, whatever it may be, uh, whether it's using the breath, whether it's using focused attention, uh, physical, intensely physical practices. And in a certain sense, whether whether we confine ourselves to what you would say these traditional uh, yogic technologies of the past or whether we supplement them with um, modern external uh, 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 let's say support from technologies that may help to entrain brain waves or whatever it might be I think uh, I have personally no uh, not only no objection to that I think it's actually you know really what uh, you know, as technological beings, uh, and particularly in the 21st century, you know, we can bring so much more to the the inner work um, if we open ourselves to uh, to working with really cutting edge technology. And as we know from technology, uh, from outer technology at least, you know, it's it's sort of ongoingly updated. Uh, so you know, example for example. You know, an iPhone that we've had from five years, which seems state-of-the-art, is no longer so. Uh, the same with our, you know, the computer through which I'm talking to you. So, these, this is this this continual updating of technology uh, <clears throat> that we are so familiar with in our everyday work lives, uh, in social media lives. There's no reason that that should not apply to, in my mind, uh, to our inner work as well. I mean, other if 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 we you know, become sort of fundamentalist in our thinking and think that, oh, all these yogic technologies and meditative disciplines were sort of, as it were, set in stone, um, you know, 2,000 years ago, and that what we're trying to do is to, to, to and, and that they're only authentic if they are of a certain vintage. I think this, this is a, a very limiting and um, reductive way of thinking, because, you know, if we applied that to medical science, for example, uh, you know, we'd be stuck with medieval methods of surgery. So um, we right. certainly don't to feel that we limit ourselves uh, in in the, the technology we bring to things. So briefly, in, in my mind, it's a very, very exciting phase in human history where we can find ways of, you could say, uh, of hacking, to use the kind of contemporary term, uh, <laughs> or, cert- or simply of, uh, of accelerating certain kinds of yogic and meditative transformation um, you know that might take much longer uh, if we if we maintained uh, if we limited ourselves let's say to to traditional so-called traditional practices and isn't when you're speaking it kind of reminds me of cause and effect in the sense that like our karmic loop that things naturally arise collectively to help us with the effect of our past actions, you know, it's this moment. So whether it's medical technology, science, you know, worldwide practice of yoga, all these things come forward to assist us in keeping moving forward uh, with our inner and outer evolution. Would you say? Mm-hmm. Yes, I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tibet in general holds a really near and dear, I don't know, place in my heart. For me, there's been a lot of interesting enough a lot of inner healing to do around some of the teachings and the practices and then allowing it to reawaken and evolve 
for here and now. Can you share a little bit with the listeners? Because if we if we combine, let's say, outer technologies with inner technologies that we can practice, if you can share a little bit with the listeners about, from your own experience, about the reawakening, so where maybe your past self practiced in a certain way and then you need it again and you're like, whoa, this is here. Uh, again, how can I deepen the practice or you kind of, for me, it's felt sometimes like I pick up where I left off. Uh, if you can share a little bit about the value of that and maybe the retention as you move forward as an eternal being versus just Ian in your physical makeup in this lifetime. Well, I think, you know, what I hear from what you're saying is this sense that we have of kind of innate affinities for certain practices, certain traditions. And, uh, you know, like you mentioned, this certain kind of resonance with the Tibetan tradition, which obviously I've felt you know, significantly in my life and you know, from the age of 18 when I went to Nepal the first time and just immediately felt that I was coming home and it was this extraordinarily exotic world but it was the first place I just felt that I was actually the sense of deep belonging uh, and resonance and affinity and um, so in a certain sense the practices that then became uh, central to my life felt like things that I was just Again, it was a kind of homecoming uh, kind of experience for me. Uh, and again, whether we attribute this to, to past life continuities or whether it's something even more mysterious uh, in the way that our brains and minds are inter interwoven and interconnected, uh, you know, is, is really a mystery. <laughs> but, uh, mm-hmm. but but the fact remains, I think that. Uh, that really, I think, really deep spiritual work comes certainly not from ever trying to kind of force oneself into something that feels uh, anomalous or um, uncomfortable in any way. But I think there is this, this, there is this affinity that we look for, I and mean, in a certain sense, it's like a relationship with, you know, an intimate relationship with with anyone that we may feel that connection with. It's it's about chemistry. And there are certain practices we may feel chemistry with and other ones we don't. And it's the ones that we do that, that activate us. So I think this is really what, you know, for me has led to my deep fascination with, uh, you know, the material uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist world. Um, but it doesn't mean that, you know, I don't have similar affinities and entanglements with other traditions as well. Yeah, absolutely. And when you when you speak about the mind and, you know, what was one versus another's or, you know, sometimes when I've been on quest, you know, I've contemplated like, you know, just the the singular to the whole. I mean, the every everyone's in feed into the collective mind and what what is the the separation you could spend a lot of time or is there one, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, mm-hmm. For for you and your your journey as you continue to uh, I don't know, one be the steward of information that is really priceless in the sense that we are in this day and age of being able to access you know I was talking with someone the other day that 
at this point in time, everyone has so much access to material that they can read instantly, books they can read instantly, where before you, we didn't have this, you know. So it is taking us on quite a bit of hyper speed for some, some interesting reason, you know, where we can digest so much, contemplate, and hopefully, you know, it continues to open. If you can share a little bit for you um, with that mind, even as if I keep, dream time keeps popping up, when mm. for the listener, if you can share a little bit about being the observer and then, you know, how easy it potentially is to become a part of the set that you're observing, you know, or just being the distinct observer, whether whatever you're observing, whether it's a, a facet of your own mind that's ready to be liberated or transformed, or it's a way that you can assist others. Um, if you can share a little bit about the opportunity where you can hold yourself in a place of observation that can give one clarity and opportunity, I guess, to serve self or others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, as you say, to be in that space of, of clear seeing, if, you, if we think of it in that way, to observe, in other words, to be able to, to see something uh, without feeling entangled in something to the degree to which no clarity exists and uh, no space exists, um, gives this opportunity to, to um, work both with oneself and others in, in profound and um, transformative ways, and yet at the same time, uh, I think you know in all spiritual work, as we know at least from the Buddhist tradition, the sense of the observer uh, also can be entrapment because you know we think of sometimes observer versus participant, uh, and that sometimes to be an observer means that you're sort of surveying something from the outside rather than being deeply engaged with it. So, in in and it probably comes from my own background, you know, in anthropology. But this idea of participant observation, which is the sort of fundamental, uh, you could say, paradigm of anthropological fieldwork. Even you know, when I was in anthropology, uh, more specifically than I am now, I always like to turn it around and talk about it about uh, uh, not about observe to be an observant participant rather than a participant observer. Um, anyway, that means in terms of spiritual fieldwork, if you will, when we enter into the dream time and this dream world and, and the sense of which these porous boundaries become ever more evident between what we otherwise would think of as outer inner um, dimensions of reality. You know, we, we participate in that in the sense that we experience it. Um, but it's obviously something we, we see, we observe. And sort of to bring this back, I think as you were kind of implying, you know, how does this relate to our practice, both personally in our own personal evolution, as well as in our work with others, um, is, again, I just sort of use, if you will, a kind of spiritual anthropology, this idea of being the observant participant, so that, in other words, we don't identify in some limiting way with uh, the phenomena uh, that arise uh, within our experience, uh, which we can look at as being dreamlike, whether or not we're asleep or in REM sleep or, or awake, um, but as things that are as our own mind, um, through habit, through conditioning, through the past and through our own predilections, creating uh, a seemingly objective world uh, that in fact 
you know, isn't objective at all. It's just our own subjectivity that becomes mirrored um, in, you know, in, in the lens of our own experience. So as a sort of coordinates for moving within that world, I mean, I really see it as, you know, we, we're moving obviously beyond the kind of conventional subject-object relationship of everyday life and you know this doesn't mean that we're we're you know that there, there's no objectivity but it means that you know it's like two subjects in a way that that are interacting and i think the non-duality that we sort of look to in spiritual work is ultimately that that union of subjectivities rather than one being a subjective and one being objective obviously it's a completely reciprocal dance so um <laughs> I suppose you know what I'm getting at here is just you know what are the coordinates, if you will, of this kind of dream time reality, which in fact is no sep- not separate from the reality that we're that we're always in. Uh, it's just a different dimension and a different level of, of, of engagement with with the phenomenal phenomenology of, of human experience. Within dream time, and I like that you use you know subjective versus objective because most people would say you know, what their perception of what objective reality is, is based on their perception that everything has a dense form. So in the dream time, they might not, if they're, they're lucid or they're aware in their dreams, they might not even say it's objective at all versus it's, they would lean towards more a subjective state. If you can share a little bit in the practices of Dreamtime as the opportunity for doing that inner work uh, to mm-hmm. assist from a dimension, you know, from being in a perceptual different state of being. But if you keep refining your practice, it feels just the same as the waking state uh, sure. from my, my perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, as you, as you say, I mean, the book is <clears throat> modeled on six classical yogic practices which uh, have been outlined from the 11th century uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist world and the fourth one of those is 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 uh, the practice of um, dream yoga as it's called literally in Tibetan Milam Naljur but uh, in a certain sense it's what we would call today a kind of not just lucid dreaming but but a kind of bringing a meditative uh, sensibility into lucid uh, dream states. And um, what that involves are very specific techniques for learning how to sort of wake up within the, the rapid eye movement phase of sleep so that we can begin to interact, change the narrative structure of our, of our dreams that otherwise are things that we tend to experience passively. And there's, sometimes they're wonderful, sometimes they're anxiety-ridden, uh, sometimes they're just strange and unusual. But in the, the Tibetan yogic practice of working with dreams creatively, uh, there's certain kind of meditative uh, practices you do, breathing techniques, visualization techniques, and there are many, and they're outlined, some of them in the book, uh, that you do so that, in a certain sense, you predispose yourself to wake up in the dream state. And, you know, you might do that, for example, by preparing your mind that if you see something anomalous that in your dream that you normally wouldn't be able to do in ordinary life, like fly, 
that can be one of the triggers by which you say, ah, oh, okay, I'm dreaming. Now, that doesn't mean that you wake up and come out of the dream, but it just means that suddenly you have this range of possibilities at your disposal that we don't normally have in our normal waking state. We can't normally fly, walk through walls, uh, you know, breathe underwater, but these are all things that we actually can do imaginatively in the dream state. So in the Tibetan yogic way of seeing this, um, you know, by actually cultivating those non-ordinary capacities in the dream state, and then we emerge out of them into our everyday waking life, um, we begin to just create a certain sense of flexibility and openness uh, within our everyday life, where we begin to realize that things that might not have seemed possible suddenly become so. And it just this this idea of just trying to bring a certain fluidity and and porousness into our experience of the phenomenal world which again in the tibetan dream yoga practices you begin to look at even the waking life as a dream um, and the idea of doing that is to sort of recognize that it's something that can be interacted with that it's not something fixed and unalterable and that by seeing it as a dream you can just suddenly change the narrative um, so it's a certain sense of, you know, of magical thinking on the one hand, or of active imagination in the Jungian sense, but it's this idea of engaging experience uh, creatively um, and imaginatively rather than passively. And in a certain sense, that's really the essence of the the dream yoga practice in the Tibetan Buddhist view of things. Is that you know we have more possibilities in that sense, strangely, when we're asleep and dreaming. Mm. than we do in our own everyday waking state of consciousness. So it's this idea of breaking down those kind of um, conventional ways in which we look at one as being illusory and one as being real and beginning to recognize that, that in a certain sense, the common denominator of both is, is the human imagination. And that by working with the human imagination rather than being in a certain sense the, the, the passive uh, uh, you could say observer of imaginative processes that are in any case taking place we begin to, to, to develop more capacity and possibilities in our life within that when you talk about playing with the, the rewrites that we can do if you can share on two things uh, the porous nature that happens and what's required for someone because they might naturally some of these things and just reading your book may activate within them and sometimes mm -hmm. you don't know exactly why what's happening and it could be disorienting mm -hmm. so sure. if you can share a little bit about managing porous nature in life and then also on the other side uh if you can share a little bit about the cause and effect wheel of the rewrites where uh bringing in awareness when maybe you decide if you're starting to realize that you can shift things, um, how you do it with non-grasping, uh, from a non, uh, from not from a grasping place, but maybe from your highest state of being. Certainly, it's um, so. I think in all of these practices, and again, it's not just limited to these six, uh, let's say, classical Tibetan yogas that that are essentially working with six different sort of energy centers or chakras within the body. Essentially, they're working from the bottom up, and I'll just mention them first because all these kind of come into play. 
So if we look at the, the, the six yogas in the Tibetan tradition as they were originally outlined um, in the 11th century, I mean, we work with the tumo, the yoga of inner fire. Um, we play with fire, literally, both imaginatively and uh, experientially in order to transform our, our experience of ourselves um, and to bring a kind of renewed energy, vitality and an awareness. And we use that um, to to create a state of, you could say, intensified well-being. It would actually, you know, actually called in the Tibetan tradition, but we translate it as bliss. But bliss in the certain sense that it's you have already transcended in the very experience of bliss any kind of grasping sensibility or mind, because desire is always, of course, characterized by wanting wanting in its original etymological meaning of something that's lacking, whereas a state of bliss is already a state of fulfillment, which there's nothing more to be desired. So, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, um, the actual experience of bliss is already to have solved, you could say, the problem that the Buddha proposed in the first noble truth, you know, that all existence is characterized by, by desire, or dissatisfaction. The state of bliss actually overturns that. Um, so this is what you know the the first of these six yogas is about. It's about in, about inducing, if you will, um, that that state of bliss consciousness um, within the body by playing metaphorically with with fire, um, in the sense of this inner fire, and this works then toward in the fire actually brings about a state of illumination, as fire of course does. And all of these are essentially yogas of fire and light, because the next yoga is the clear light consciousness, uh, the, the pure, un, unobstructed awareness that arises in the heart center as this fire, in a certain sense, is, is rising up and illuminating uh, an or a dimension of human experience that is often obscured to us because we simply just don't pay attention to it or we don't do those things that can bring it into uh, into greater focus and awareness and that moves us then you know from these uh, the yogas of the daytime as it were into the yogas of the night which is the the dream time uh, and then into practices that actually extend into end-of-life experience uh, with um, the, the practices of poa the ejection of consciousness beyond the body the exploration of these interdimensional uh, realms between one life and another life as it was understood in the Tibetan tradition. So you use the, you know, again, the word of um, this porousness of, um, of experience is really what is the porousness of these different states uh, that we, in a certain sum of which we go through, you know, in, a, in, a, in our everyday 24-hour cycle of sleeping, dreaming, waking, breathing. All of these represent, in a certain sense, different states of consciousness that we can work with uh, creatively and interactively. So again, all these yogas are really about just tools, technologies um, to bring in, in a certain sense, to um, to make those veils between these different levels of experience more more porous, uh, more diaphanous, uh, to keep that metaphor, uh, so that we, again we be able we begin to be able to dance between dimensions rather than feeling that we're on one side of a veil or another. We learn how to, to move between different states of being. And in that sense, we become masters of our own experience, not in some kind of controlling way, but just simply because we've learned how to play uh, in a way more, more creatively. And in doing so, we are no longer sort of bound by the conventional 
kind of rules, uh, which of course are only imaginary rules, uh, that confine us to a single dimension. Mm. And in that sense, um, I, but I, you know, I think one of the operative words here is really play. Uh, we forget some. We, we we tend to think of play as being something that children do, but it's probably even a more essential tool. I mean, it's actually, of course, how children learn to become adults by playing at it. You know, we have to imagine the possibilities. We have to make believe, and by making believe, these things doesn't mean that we just end up in a world of magical thinking, but we actually begin to recognize that, that that reality is malleable and that we therefore, you know, are no longer sort of under the thrall of our projections and preoccupying thoughts, emotions, and kind of distorted perceptions. You don't have to throw those three-year-old tantrums. <laughs> well, those can be actually... Well, I'm not sure those three-year-old tantrums. I... I, I I think probably a lot can be learned uh, from them. Absolutely. Whether, <laughs> observing yeah. them. And it, absolutely. And observing them even more so. And when the patience yeah. and the and actually just to watch, you know, in that in the beautiful unfolding of a child's existence, just that it's a sheer energy manifestation. And yeah, to begin absolutely. to sort of appreciate it on that level is also something that as adults, you know, we we, we we know we need to, to see that children are in their own, have their own technologies for um, for state shifting, and certainly a tantrum <laughs> can be a powerful one. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I always tell parents that those first five or six years, you can learn a lot about your child's soul, you know, and where maybe the, some of their inner work is if you observe them versus react mm-hmm. to them. Um, yes. Yeah. Within that, I like that the word play it made me smile. So one, well, there was two things I want to ask uh, you in that regard is that the use of laughter to actually kind of work with energy in a way that most people might think of it more if someone says something funny, you're responding in laughter, but how in Tibetan uh, principles and practices and with something that naturally just arises is this use of laughter that sometimes dissipates or like kind of like pushes the energy when it's rising up in a situation to help it you know reorganize or gain perspective with it if you can share a little bit Mm -hmm. about um, that use Mm-hmm. certainly well i think i mean laughter as as we know this idea of um you know of humor uh if we want to look at it that way is actually related to the original greek uh concepts of medicine that involved you know let's say the four humors of the body uh, but if we look at it in our kind of more contemporary way in which we look at it it's you know, to have a sense of humor keeps us in good humor. In other words, it keeps us in in a, in a state of balance and um, where we are learn to see things, you know, in a little bit with a little bit of perspective rather than feeling completely caught up in them. And of course, laughter in that sense is is uh, using the human voice uh, in a way that completely transcends any kind of ordinary sense of language or or we could actually rather say that laughter is this primordial language of the the deep uh the deepest levels of the of of, uh, the subconscious mind that in a way literally is an eruption of um that brings us into a does into a kind of a non-dual state 
I mean, laughter does so many things. I mean, we also know from polyvagal theory now that that laughter, like certain kinds of breathing, along with muscular contractions, activates the the vagus nerve and therefore kind of stimulates the the parasympathetic response within the body that brings us into a state of of deep relaxation and spaciousness. And we can obviously experience that after you know a wonderful uh, bout of laughing of laughing. Uh, so. I mean, we also know how spiritual traditions have used laughter, um, particularly in the Zen tradition in Japan. It was actually used as a method. This, the morning laugh was, uh, you know, started out with, you know, some of these koanic uh, utterances that we have in the Zen tradition that, in a way, are pre-rational. Uh, that were again designed to sort of cut through the the linear conceptual. Mentation that prevents us from that kind of more illuminated, enlightened perception, but it also extended directly into laughter, and in a way, it was recognized as something that could be induced, whether or not there was so-called cause for that laughter or not. It could be, and it would become infectious. And we also know that from, you know, practices that are now done in India, where they have these sort of laughter labs, as they call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just hear somebody laughing for no reason, it becomes funny, and therefore it becomes infectious. Uh, and of course, in the Tibetan tradition, there were also the the idea of laughter was used. Um, we have you know records of it just simply in poetry and in in phrases attributed to some of the great masters of the past. That you know the the life itself sometimes can be so absurd that one can only one can the only appropriate response is to just, <laughs> is just this great laughter, <laughs> this laughter of the gods, as it were, uh, which just means that we, we cut through all of the kind of reified and, uh, perceptions that just keep us in taking things too seriously. So I would say that, that you know, to me is really, um, you know, kind of, I mean, sometimes you know, spirituality can be taken far too seriously and kind of, in, in, and when it is, it can keep us in thrall to the very kinds of uh, experience phenomena that we're actually you know needing to cut through so i think this is why you know a certain sense of play being brought to spiritual work is so important and it's about experimentation it's about exploration it's about moving beyond the known into the unknown and of course the you know the best model for that that we have is when we look back on our childhood and remember how we could play games and how those games were things that actually just brought us into to a whole new sense of who we were and what we could be. Beautifully said. If we can share about levity, or if you could share a little bit on death, yoga, and transcendent death. You know, I, a lot of people mm-hmm. aren't comfortable with the concept of death uh, right. in certain Buddhist traditions and yogic traditions. So that's part of the propensity of if one is pulled to it is to train yourself for death um, Mm -hmm. in the sense of exiting kind of seamlessly and Mm -hmm. if you can share a little bit about the you know how these all kind of lead up to prepare us for exiting this door and then entering into another space perceptually Mm -hmm. maybe not Uh, but if you can Mm -hmm. share your relationship with it Again, as we know, I mean, looking, again, taking it from the context of the Buddhist tradition, which this book is, in a way, manifesting, uh, the you know, traditional, um, let's sort of say, say, the popular perception uh, within the Buddhist tradition is, of course, that we have, that one life 
uh, leads to to an ongoing uh, to another life uh, and that we pass through this kind of experiential phase between one life and the next and that we need that our spiritual work helps us to learn to negotiate uh, and these are the kind this is the kind of end of life phenomena uh, that um, is associated with death and dying and which the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of course has a very highly developed uh, kind of technology around um, I mean one large part of that is the is this work uh, that was trans the Bardo Tudo that was translated into English in 1927 as the Tibetan Book of the Dead but its actual meaning is to, is the liberation on hearing at the moment of death and so what it involved was actually to have those who were initiated into the practice in a sense being read to um, uh, at the time that they were making this transition and in a certain sense being encouraged to to not identify with the kinds of phenomenological uh, apparitional um, appearances that, that that arise as the the sense organs are beginning to to uh, to lose their their boundaries and, uh, and of course we we know uh, from experience of now with near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences some of that phenomena and we also see that a lot of that phenomena is associated with very transcendent and positive uh, phenomena so that you know for example those who've had these near-death experiences you know do come back and you know, whether we have books like you know heaven is real uh, which of course are just projections because these people haven't died and come back. I mean, it's, it, you, you, right. don't, you can't die and come back. You, you, you can have a near-death experience that can be extremely noetic in the sense that it can be filled with light, illumination, and, and a feeling that you have completely have a separate existence from the human body. But, you know, we just, we, you know, in, unless the brain and, and flatlining uh, isn't enough, it just, you know, as long as there's a brain, were, the mind is still being uh, moderated uh, through it. Um, and so it's a great mystery as to, you know, where does the mind, uh, what happens to the mind, if anything, uh, with the complete uh, dissolution of the human body. That, that remains the great mystery. But I think what's important in all of these experiences, whether we look at it from the traditional descriptions in the Eastern yogic traditions, um, or from contemporary parapsychological research into near-death experiences, is that the overwhelming um, evidence is that and there's actually this research is going on very much now in Switzerland that where they describe that the state of dying is to go into a state of non of non-duality and that associated with that is a state of bliss and it's only if we hold on to a kind of conventional coordinates of everyday mind and thinking uh, that we can block that experience so, in a certain sense, I think, you know, if we look at what is the common denominator uh, within all of these technologies for learning how to transition into either end-of-life experiences or into kind of liminal states and, you know, however they might arise, it's, it's learning how to let go. Uh, not how learning to let go of life and love and all of the things that we think, you know, that we that are so wonderful, but just learning to let go as a, just as a simple technology of cutting through, if you will, cutting through the the obstacles that we create for ourselves that block that experience of a larger reality that's beyond 
our mind as we have become habituated to think of it. Um, so it's a way of letting go of thinking, letting go of our of our um, kind of emotions, which are simply the movements of the mind as we again uh, tend to uh, to become uh, connected to, and uh, and and moving in to uh, and embracing that that larger reality that arises. And I think that really is the you know and the, and the training for that, of course, in the in the Tibetan tradition is to simulate the the, the experience of, of death, which of course is. Is is viewed ultimately in the Tibetan tradition as this incredibly noetic, blissful, illuminated reality, which is the that the bardo. If one can enter into that state uh, without clinging towards the conventional linear coordinates of everyday experience, but rather open to this pure luminosity that is there always as the the substratum of our minds and our bodies and our, our and our existence. I mean, we are we are light. We know that you know we matter is energy and energy is photons and photons is 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 is, is illumination. Uh, so this photonic reality of light is really you know what we in a certain sense have come from and it's, you know it's where we're going and in the meantime we're having this incredible adventure of of inhabiting these. Uh, Human bodies, or these human bodies inhabiting our minds, however we want to look at it, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and playing with that in fundamental dynamic, you know, whether the mind is in the body or the body is in the mind. I mean, it's really there. Look at it suddenly from both sides at once, and could be very freeing. And I think that's really probably one of the best uh, kind of ways of being able to look at end-of-life experiences uh, for ourselves and uh, to help others to, to learn to sort of just to let go of our of our limited ways of seeing uh, at a time when obviously our, our sensory apparatuses are are shifting uh, and, and a new reality begins to unfold uh, uh, yeah so much exciting opportunity uh, from my vantage at the, in that moment <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but yeah. not everyone celebrates my enthusiasm. No, we don't celebrate. <laughs> you can't, yeah, I suppose it's not something to celebrate, but it's something <laughs> to, uh, you know, when that moment comes. And I guess that's really what the Tibetan tradition is 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 telling us: is that we prepare for it simply by learning to, to, um, in a way, be comfortable with the fact that you know we, as human beings, <laughs> as living beings. <laughs> You know the, the the very nature of, of life and existence is 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 uh, is defined by the fact that it doesn't last. And right. The sense of impermanence, the sense of of transience, uh, is something that um, you know we, in a certain sense, we have to to recognize as a reality and uh, to some degree become comfortable with, um, right. so that we don't you know live in a in our lives in a state of denial uh, but rather in a state of just deep gratitude and appreciation for the vitality health and life and existence um, that we that we can have hopefully as uh, you know as <laughs> as long as we want it uh, yeah ab- absolutely yeah, yeah and I guess yeah. it's for me more of the internal celebration uh, of that like as a child I've been very fascinated with knowing uh when i preparing and knowing before Mm. the exit point because in a in a lot of 
you know, in a monostatic, if you're in deep meditation daily in your practices, you will feel your gateway rise up, which is rather curious is how aware in these practices, and maybe we can close out on this point because I know I'm like going yep. over almost, um, okay. is that if you can share a little just to close out on that concept of how you start to uh, feel into the quantum field, for lack of better syntax, as kind of mm-hmm. a map where you see these pinpoints like, oh, that's going to happen here, that's going to happen here. Not so much linear, but more spiral um, mm-hmm. in nature. Uh, if you can share a little bit about that and how that does help you, uh, from my perspective, prepare and be a, be uh, present, even maybe more present than you normally would if it snuck up on you. Uh-huh. No, I think, yeah, actually exactly as you describe, and it kind of goes back to what, where, where we started with full circle, with this idea of, you know, what, um, you know, in a certain sense, that the, this, the, the experiential states that we're describing are things that arise from our inner work. They're not things that, that we have to subscribe to because they're described in scientific literature, for example. So whether it's through meditation, deep states of immersive, uh, immersive states of yoga, um, you know, we... we open to a, as you call it, a quantum field, in a certain sense, a field of possibility that where we've entered into a kind of spiral logic as opposed to a linear uh, progression, uh, you know, what the, the poet Navalis referred to as moon grammar, in a certain sense that there's this sort of sense of, uh, of immersive, interpenetrating, interconnected worlds. And that within that, as you also mentioned, you know, we're seeing kind of different points of possibility. We're seeing kind of visionary states that can begin to seem that they are anti- that they anticipate or prefigure events that are going to happen. Um, they may be imaginative uh, projections. They may be phenomena from a level of experience that is 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 normally veiled to us simply because we don't put ourselves in the way of such experiences but i think that's really you know from your work and from you know all of what we're describing this is this is the extraordinary invitation that uh, all of this kind of inner work whether it's from the tibetan tradition western tradition opens us to is to just um to to begin playing with another dimension of of, of human possibility which we have access to through different forms of contemplative work, meditation, uh, contemplative prayer, whatever it might be, that suddenly we are freed from the kind of just linear progression which our lives just sometimes seem to progress in, in, in a rather dreary and overly predictable or, or let's say less than optimal way. And suddenly there is this, as you call it, you know, a quantum possibilities that things are coming out of left field or right field from top and bottom and it's that it's that dimension that we learn to let go into or we learn to embrace because it really it amounts to the same thing and when we do that it's just we realize that our life it becomes renewed in that process and that everything we might have thought we are when we identify only with our current thoughts and emotions is really just a shell of this incredible being of light that we all are and that we all share because you know we're all within that that photonic dimension if you will and i think this is really a very exciting thing about uh you know what all these practices are leading us to and it's about really 
I mean, if there was one key to it all, it's just really trying to learn to let go of the fear, um, the anxiety that we have in trying to, let's say, define our lives in a, in, in a way by solidifying them as opposed to just opening them up to to sheer possibility. I think mm. it's really that, that you could say perceptual and experiential shift that that just makes life so much more exciting and worth living as uh, when we can just let go that that fear that keeps us uh, in, in some sense makes us our own uh, slaves to our own limits mm. so, oh. yeah. <laughs> lean into the possible uh, absolutely uh, <laughs> well Ian I've exceeded our time I could talk to you for days I run one to just say thank you from the bottom of my heart and all those that you touch through your writing and the, all those that you help really transmute uh, and articulate some complex concepts uh, into a format where people can digest and then they like I said they're little seeds that wake wake people up that they have no idea you know uh, so mm. you're a beautiful magical being and scribe so I appreciate you we will put all your links do you what's the best website uh, for the listeners to connect to your work and we'll share your books and different things that you've done. Okay, well, I have a kind of dormant website that I just simply haven't had time to deal with but uh, which is actually just www.ianbaker.com, and I will resurrect it at some point. If people do go to it, it, it simply has my uh, my email address on it, uh, and a couple images, I think. Um, and so people can reach me through ian at ianbaker.com uh, or the ianbaker108 at gmail.com, either way. And uh, as I said, because of this incredible immersion that I have right now in a couple different writing projects, I just haven't uh, I haven't dealt with 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 the website, um, but it is something that in the coming months I will certainly be be looking at and resurrecting. And uh, because once I kind of emerge from this writing phase, uh, you know, there will be you know, uh, certain events and travel seminars, experiences, and things like that uh, uh, across the world that I'll be engaged with again, and all of that will be up on the website. But in the meantime, um, yeah, if people are, are particularly interested, they can just contact me by email. I think that's the best. Beautiful. Well, thank you. I, I, like I said, I really appreciate you taking the time. So My pleasure. You, you enjoy the rest of your evening over yonder. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh, we'll keep connected. We'll see when you make it stateside uh, to teach over here. It would be great to learn from you. Very good, Susan. Again, thank you for inviting me onto your program and um, for being able to share some thoughts on the nature of things. <laughs> I look forward to in touch. Yeah. All, all thank you. Now. Thank okay, you. Take care. Well, once again, I want to thank Ian Baker for being here today. You can connect to his work below and we'll update the links as he puts forth his calendar in 2020 where he'll be around the world. Until next time, this is she signing out with a full heart, a soft gaze, a deep bow, and a namaste. Be simply 